All right, cool. Why don't you guys take your Bibles, and we're going to continue in Philippians. Um, And tonight, we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. Philippians 4, 2 to 9. And we have a couple more weeks in this this letter, so getting to the end. Let me read our passage, and then um, we'll get started. So this is Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 2. Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God of peace, we come before you now, and um, we rest on the promise that you will be with us, Lord, if we draw near to you. That if we let our requests be made known to you, uh, when we come before you in prayer, uh, Lord, that you will draw near to us, and that you will teach us uh, a peace that surpasses our understanding, that transcends our circumstances. Um, and Father, in, in this room now, I know that many of us have, have worries, have anxieties, have things that are on our minds, um, and we're distracted, Lord. And I pray that our time in the Word um, would serve us um, in helping us to know the peace of God, Lord, to, um, to know you, the God of peace, even better. And so uh, do that in our hearts now, Lord. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start with a question. Um, that, that question is, when's the last time that you experienced true peace? When's the last time that you experienced true peace? Um, and maybe for you, you're like way too long ago, right? Like a long, long time ago. Maybe for you, it was the end of your exams last semester, and you're looking forward to peace at the end of this semester. Uh, maybe you think of a weekend that you were really eagerly anticipating at the end of a really busy week. Um, For me, as I was thinking about this question, one of the first things that came to mind uh, when I think of peace is being in Hawaii. (laughs) Um, And I I went to Hawaii for the first time uh, several months ago for my honeymoon, and uh, I loved it. It was the best place in the world. I just got back from a short vacation to Seattle, and it it just wasn't as good as Hawaii. (laughs) Um, Like in Hawaii, I feel like it's totally okay if you, you wake up, even if you're on vacation, and you have no idea what you're doing that day. Right? You can just go to the beach, you go eat, you get shaved ice, and like, you don't have a plan. And anywhere else, um, like, especially any major city, there's the pressure of like, you need to have an itinerary, you have to kind of like, know how to get around, you have to know the sites, uh, you have to deal with crowds and stuff like that. So that's what I think about. I think of Hawaii when <laughs> I think of peace. Um, and maybe that's your perception of what it means to have peace. Right? Maybe you think of like, inactivity, or you think of no pressures or obligations, you think of having a clear calendar or no deadlines. And as you consider, maybe right now as you're sitting here, 
the busyness of your current schedule, your many responsibilities, the circumstances in your life um, that are out of your control, knowing and experiencing true peace seems like a long way off for you, right? Well, I think in our passage tonight, it teaches us that true biblical peace, um, it teaches us about true biblical peace, and it teaches us how to get there. And I think just to start out, the encouraging thing is that peace, Scripture teaches us, is attainable no matter where you're at or what's going on in your life. And you can have it no matter where you are at or what is going on in your life. Peace is a promise that is given to us from the God of peace himself. Okay, and then we're going to look at that tonight. Um, let me just set up some context. As I said, we're finishing. Um, we're in the last chapter of this letter to the Philippians. Uh, if you backtrack to chapter 3 a little bit, Paul has just reminded us, uh, your citizenship is in heaven, right? Um, we need to be eternally minded. And just a little context for you. For the Philippians, this was like a military kind of uh, colony where Roman citizenship was a big deal for them. So they had a bunch of privileges, they had a bunch of rights. Um, and so Paul is telling them, like, these, these rights, these advantages that you had are secondary to your identity as citizens in heaven. And so if they're secondary, then you ought to be willing to give them up. You ought to be willing to loosen your grip on them for the sake of others. Why? Because your citizenship is in heaven. The best is yet to come. Okay, and so in the meantime, while we're still here, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, stand firm. That's what we do until um, we're in heaven. And what does it look like then to live as heavenly citizens right now? What does it look like to live in this fallen world in the face of persecution? Well, that's what our passage is going to teach us, chapter 4. All right, what does it look like to stand firm while maintaining our citizenship in heaven? And so here's uh, kind of the key idea, I guess. We can know a surpassing peace from God because of the gospel. We can know a surpassing peace from God because of the gospel. And there's a lot in this passage, uh, and I wish we could spend more time on each of them. So fortunately, we won't be able to go super in-depth on each of these things, but uh, we'll look at this in three parts. Okay, so uh, point number one, the peace of God in our relationships. Peace of God in our relationships. Verse two. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So if you've been with us throughout our study in Philippians, you know that one of the uh, kind of the important recurring themes in this letter is a theme of unity, right? Unity because of the gospel. Um, In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, that he wants to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's his hope for them. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, All of you must be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, so similar ideas there. I want you to be together. I want you to have one mind, striving side by side, being united. And we learned, if we read in chapter 2, that unity with one another happens as we're humble with one another, right? Unity through humility, as we put the interests of others ahead of our own. And so, as Paul is kind of preparing to wrap up his letter, he says to the Philippians, right, he says, you must not only stand firm in this fallen world, but you have to stand firm together. You have to stand firm together. 
And here in verse 2, he's going to identify these two ladies in the church specifically. And their names are Yodia and Syntyche. Okay, and we don't know a lot about uh, who these two ladies were. We don't know exactly what they were arguing about. Um, there's actually a lot that we don't know about some of the details here. For example, Paul refers to this guy that he calls true companion. And like, people don't know who that was. Um, and Paul mentions a guy named Clement. Um, and we don't know why Paul mentions him. Uh, but all of that is beside the point, okay? Remember, Paul and the Philippians had a really, really deep and personal friendship, right? And so, uh, of course, reading from an outsider perspective, we're not going to know everything going on. Okay, but there are some things that we do know. First, we know that Euodia and Syntyche probably weren't arguing about doctrine, okay? Their argument wasn't about right or wrong doctrine. And we know that because elsewhere we see that Paul would have corrected that. If it was a matter of false doctrine, Paul would have uh, made an end to that. More importantly, what we do know and what is Paul's point here is that what they need to do, right? The necessary course of action for these two women was to agree in the Lord. They need to agree in the Lord. They need to get along. They need to work it out. And that word there for agree or to agree, it's actually the same word where Paul uses in Philippians 2.2 where he says we are to be like-minded, Okay, we are to be of one mind. You are to agree in the Lord. Um, if you notice also, Paul instructs them to agree with that phrase, in the Lord. Okay, and um, I know that that might just seem like Christianese to you, right? Like it's just, of course, you know, saying the Lord. Um, but if you read throughout Philippians, Paul uses that phrase to describe surprising human conduct whose source is the Lord. Surprising human conduct whose source is the Lord. In other words... Paul, he could have simply told Yodia and Syntyche, hey guys, like, agree, or get along. And on a human level, that would look a lot different than what Paul means when he says, agree in the Lord. In other words, God changes the way that we do things. There needs to be a marked difference between how we, as Christians, resolve conflict versus how the world does it. Um, let me just give you some examples where Paul uses that phrase. Um, so in, in chapter 2, verse 19 and 24, Paul is talking about his travel plans, right? He's talking about how he hopes to come back to them. And he says, I hope in the Lord to return to you guys, or I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. What that means is, yeah, he has these plans, but he knows that they're not up to him. And if those plans change, then he's going to submit to that. Okay. Um, another example, he says, in 2.29, he says, so he tells the Philippians, welcome Epaphroditus in the Lord. And if you guys remember what happened to Epaphroditus, um, basically he had one job and he didn't do his job. Right? He got sick, and so he, uh, Paul had to send him back. And so if you're the, you know, the Philippian church, you might have been disappointed in him. Or you might have been like, let down by him. And Paul says, no, welcome him in the Lord when you could be disappointed in him. Right? Receive him with open arms. One more, one more example. In, in 3.1 and also in 4.4, 4, um, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Right? And that's rejoicing even in the uh, face of persecution. Even though persecution gives him every reason to do otherwise, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, so that phrase is referring to this surprising human conduct whose strength is God. It cha- God changes the way that we do things. And so bringing it back to our passage, when Paul says, look, guys, I want you to agree in the Lord. He says, I want you to reconcile. I want you to work it out. Even though such conflict and even though such disagreements for the unbelieving world... They should destroy and they should divide. I want you to act differently than what the world might do. And how do we do that? Well, because of the gospel. 
Right? Ephesians 2.14, it says, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. That we can make peace with one another because Christ has made peace for us um, with God and with one another. Ephesians 2 says he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility that separated us from God and from each other. You see, that peace must be made. Okay, Peace must be made. It's not a thing that just happens. Pursuing peace with others might require you to put the priority of the gospel over your own priority of comfort. And so Paul calls these two ladies, and he calls us to be willing to subordinate our own agendas to the more important agenda of the gospel. That we need to humbly and we need to sacrificially give of ourselves for the sake of others. I want you to realize, like, all of this stuff that Paul has said about unity, right, it's not just general, it's not just just abstract, but it plays out practically, it plays out concretely in these, like, ground-level specific relationships that you have in your lives. And when you think of that, let me ask you, um, like, does anyone come to mind for you? Right? Is there a relationship that comes to mind for you that, that you know you need to work out, that you know you need to agree in the Lord? And there are a few things uh, in these verses I want to point out that I think are helpful for us in how we apply this to our own lives. First, um, a lot of people make a big deal about how Paul calls out Yodia and Sneaky by name, right? And, like, uh, people will say, like, oh, you never want your name to be mentioned in the Bible, right? Because, like, you're remembered for that forever um, in history. And and I get that. Um, But understand the reason that Paul can do that, the reason he can call them out by name, uh, is because of his friendship with them. Okay, he knows them. He has relational credibility with them. And if you look at verse 3, he says that these women, they have labored side by side with me in the gospel. He says their names, along with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers, their names are written in the book of life. And so what we learn is that uh, Sintiki, Yodia, these two women, they were likely leaders in their church. They were co-laborers. They played significant roles. They were um, godly women. And so, though it might seem a surprise that Paul uh, like points specifically at these two people, here's what I want us to realize first, that we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of conflict with one another. Okay, It happens even to the best of us. We shouldn't be surprised when we have conflict with one another. And that doesn't mean that we don't seek to do anything about it. That doesn't mean that we don't take it seriously. But we shouldn't be surprised by it. In fact, conflict opens up opportunities, right? It gives us opportunities for gospel realities such as forgiveness, for reconciliation, um, for showing humility with one another that we wouldn't have otherwise if we didn't have this conflict that God allowed to be in our lives. So we shouldn't be surprised by conflict, but what are we to do about it? Um, Second thing I want to point out is we we move towards others humbly and helpfully. Okay, move towards others humbly and helpfully. And I want you to notice a few things in the text here. First, uh, Paul, he doesn't take sides. Okay, if you look at verse 2, look at how Paul phrases it. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And that second, I entreat, is redundant. Okay, he, he didn't have to say that. But he's making a point. And his point is that the more important thing isn't a matter of who is right or who is wrong. Right? He, he commands these two ladies, he entreats them both to do the same thing. See, if gospel unity is your priority, you will move towards uh, each other humbly, whether you are offended or whether you are the offender. 
And so let me ask you guys, are you willing to make the first move? Right? In conflict, are you willing to make the first move? Or do you wait for the other person to say sorry? Is it your inclination to move towards others or away from them? Second thing I want to point out is Paul calls on this third party, right? The true companion, the mystery guy that we talked about. And he says, help these women. Um, and like I said earlier, we're not sure who this person is. But what we see is that Yodia and Syntyche's conflict, it affects, them, it affects more than just these two women themselves. Right? It affects uh, everyone in the church. And he calls his true companion to be involved. Right? And he, what does he say? He says, help these two women. He says, helpfully move towards them. Um, and practically, that could look like a no- any number of things. It could mean mediating in the conflict. It could mean uh, like helping each of them individually to take the log out of their own eyes so they can see clearly. Um, but the big idea that I want you to take away is that all of us need to be concerned about gospel unity with one another. All of us need to be concerned about gospel unity. And so is that your greatest concern when there is conflict in the church? I know many of you have probably been in a situation where, like, a friend at church will come up to you, right? And, and they'll share with you about this other person that they don't really like or they have, uh, they have trouble getting along with. What do you say to them when, when they come up to you? Are you helping them with what you say to them, move towards gospel unity? Or are you, are you more concerned about the gospel than you are about choosing sides? Are you more concerned about the truth, right, speaking the truth in love to this person? Or are you more concerned about what this person thinks about you in that moment? Do you help this person focus on justice and what they think they deserve? Or do you help them to focus on the grace of the gospel? And so are you helping one another um, to move towards others? Are you helping one another when conflict comes up? And the third thing is this, aim for gospel affection. Um, look back at verse 1. I know this isn't part of our passage, but look at how Paul speaks of the Philippian believers. He says, My brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. Now maybe you have heard someone say, um, that, like, I love that brother or sister in Christ, but I don't really like them, right? Maybe you've said that yourself. Um, and it's easy to feel that way about someone who's wronged us, right? Or, or someone that we've been in conflict with. And I get that. Like, there are real consequences. You know, there's, like, broken trust. There's things that happen um, when conflict comes up, when someone sins against us or when we sin against others. But I think Scripture challenges, challenges us a little bit against that way of thinking, Right, That, like, I love them, but I don't like them way of thinking. See, Paul didn't just love the Philippians out of, like, obligation, out of Christian duty. He liked them. He had a deep and personal affection for them. He was intentional about telling them how much he loved them. Right? And that needs to be the goal in our relationships as well, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you look at how Paul talks about the Philippians... Um, can you genuinely talk about your own brothers and sisters in Christ in that same way? And I know that might take time, especially with those that we are, might be in conflict with, um, but that's where we should be headed. Right? Gospel affection for one another. Okay, that's the first point. Point number two, the peace of God in our circumstances. Peace of God in our circumstances. So um, these next several verses are some of the most famous 
I know in this letter to the Philippians, but uh, let's look at this in two parts. And I want you to notice as we're going through this, some of the parallels, okay? So Paul gives a command, and then he gives a promise after that, right? He gives, you might have heard it this way, he gives an imperative, and it's founded on this indicative, okay? And let's look at it two parts. First part, how we relate to others, how we relate to others. Verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So Paul is um, he's writing to a church who was in the midst of persecution. Okay, and, and Paul's instructions to them are, what? rejoice in the Lord always. And as we've been going through Philippians, you know that like he's said rejoice a lot. Or he's used the word joy a lot. Um, this is actually the seventh and eighth time he's used this word in this, these four chapters. And to rejoice is a command. Right? We are commanded to rejoice. That joy for the Christian is something that is attainable in whatever circumstance. And I think just to, let me say this, as we're talking about knowing God's peace, right? Our, our main theme is peace um, in this passage. I think it's helpful that Paul would insert this short word about rejoicing. Because it teaches us something about what peace means, right? Peace is not defined by, like, just not being affected by anything, um, maybe you guys know someone like that. I think I'm like that. I'm just like nothing really affects me that much. It's not uh, like everything's good all the time. It's not cynicism. It's not being unfeeling. Christian joy is this deep-rooted confidence. It's a deep-rooted confidence in God's person and God's plans. It's a confidence that whatever happens, uh, you know the promise of Romans eight twenty eight, right? Whatever happens happens for our good and for His glory. And so knowing that joy, having that confidence, that enables us to have peace instead of anxiety. Right? It enables us to respond differently to others. In verse 5, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to others. And that word there, uh, reasonableness, it means graciousness, or it means gentleness. Um, it's talking about this like attitude of kindness, okay? where, where maybe normally you might respond in retaliation. And what is the reason that we can be gracious, we can be gentle with others? Well, he says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Uh, Do you guys remember back in elementary school when you would hear that the principal was going to come by your class that day, right? And uh, it was a big deal, wasn't it, when the principal came to your class? What happened? Everyone would be on their best behavior, right? And like everyone would sit like super straight, hence like no one sits like this, only when the principal comes. Um, And then the teacher would actually be teaching, you know? Um, Why? Because the principal was coming, right? The principal was at hand. In a similar way, that's what the nearness of God does for the Christian living in a fallen world. The Lord is at hand. And Paul here uh, could be referring either to the timing of Christ's return, like he's going to return soon, or he could be referring to Christ's proximity, like he's near to you. Um, but the idea is the same. We can be gracious, we can be gentle with others, even when we are wronged, even when we're mistreated, because we know that the Lord is at hand. And he's about to make all things right. And so knowing that, let me ask you, are you a gracious person? Are you a gracious person? Would someone say that that is true of you? Are you willing to um, step away? Are you, are you willing to be corrected, to not have the final word? How are you with people who don't agree on the same things that you do? Right? How, like, how do you deal with them? How do you treat them? 
do you try to get to know them? Or do you feel like you already know all that you need to know about them? See, when you think of the church's witness to an unbelieving world, oftentimes it's not like winning arguments that wins people to Jesus, right? It's, it's a profound and it, it's an unexplainable graciousness and gentleness that wins people to Jesus. And even if you're an outsider, you, when you see that happening in this community, like you admire that, you're attracted to that, even if you don't agree with everything that they say. Okay, so that's the first thing, how we relate to God. Second, or sorry, how we relate to others. Second, how we relate to God. Um, verse 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So um, notice kind of the, the logic and the flow here, right? First he says, he gives a prohibition. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, do not be anxious about anything. And he's, he gives a command. Instead, let your requests be made known to God. And then he's going to give uh, specific instructions. How do you fulfill that command? But he says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Okay. So he says, be anxious about nothing. Right? Do not be anxious about anything. Um, and I think the story of Mary and Martha, it's a familiar story to you guys. Um, in Luke chapter 10, it gives us a good picture of what it means to be anxious. Um, if you guys remember that story, Jesus is in Mary and Martha's house. right? And they're hosting him, and Martha is distracted. She, she's like running around trying to take care of the house, trying to make sure that she's a good host. And Mary is, meanwhile, is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching, right? And Jesus doesn't scold Mary for like being lazy. He scolds Martha because she's distracted. And this is what he says. He says, Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. You were anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And so anxiety is this over-concern for too many things. An over-concern for too many things that we lose sight of the one thing that matters the most. Okay, so Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Rather, in everything, pray. In everything, pray. In fact, Paul says it four different ways for us. He says, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, and request. Okay, if that weren't clear enough. In everything, pray. And he says, let your request be made known to God. Now, there's um, something really super obvious I want to point out about that, uh, which is God already knows your request, right? Like, God already knows what he needs to know about you. He already knows what you're going to pray even before you ask him, is what Jesus says in Matthew. And so you don't, like, let your request be made known to him as if to fill uh, fill him in on what you need because, like, he doesn't know or he's unaware Paul says, go to God, let him know, because first of all, he cares about it, right? He wants to hear it. And then second, going to him in prayer, that act of praying to him and letting him know, it's an act of acknowledging our dependence on him. And God cares about your concerns. In fact, if you've ever read through um, Jesus' teaching on anxiety in Matthew 6, he never, uh, if you read through it, he actually never condemns our very real and daily concerns. He doesn't say, like, why? You shouldn't worry about those things at all. Rather, he says, the problem is when we've made those concerns too big in our minds, right? And we've forgotten that God cares about them and about us more than we know. Jesus says that you have lots of reasons to be anxious. You have lots of concerns, and rightly so, but 
know that your heavenly father, he knows, that, he knows all of them. He cares about you more than you think he cares about you. And so go to him and talk to him. Let your requests be made known to God. Paul also says that we are to pray with thanksgiving. Okay, we are praying with thanksgiving. And um, this is important. This isn't uh, the same as when we say to someone, thanks in advance. Right? Anyone ever say that to you, thanks in advance? Um, what, do we mean, what do we mean by that? Right? It means thanks ahead of time for doing what I'm going to tell you to do. Right? And it's like, for me, I'm like, I'm not even sure if I'm going to do that for you, but you said thanks in advance, so like, I feel like I have to do it now. Right? Um, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul says that we are to pray with a heart of thanksgiving in everything. Heart of thanksgiving in everything. It's not contingent on whether or not our requests come to fruition. It's not dependent on whether God answers those requests or not. To pray with thanksgiving is this attitude of submission to whatever God would have for you. It's a confidence that even if it's not something that you would, cho- you would have chosen for yourself, that you know it's for your good. And as we practice giving thanks in everything, as we reflect on how God has given or provided for us in the past, then that guards our hearts from anxiety and it gives us confidence for the unknown future. Right? That's what Thanksgiving does for us. It helps us to reflect on God's faithfulness to us in the past so that we can trust him with the unknown future. Uh, George Mueller, he understood this. When he lost his wife, this is what he wrote. He says, It pleased God to take to himself my beloved wife after he had left her to me 23 years and six weeks. By the grace of God, I am not merely perfectly satisfied with this dispensation, but I kiss the hand which administered the stroke. And I look again for the fulfillment of that word in this instance, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. When we stop trying to control God and what he allows to enter into our lives, then we learn to gratefully accept all that he chooses to give us. And then we can know peace. And that is a promise. He says that in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that picture is uh, this picture of a garrison, right? Like an army of troops just surrounding your heart, defending you from anxiety and fear. That's what God promises he will do. All right, point number three. The God of peace in our thinking. The God of peace in our thinking. Verse 8. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, Verses 8 to 9, they they kind of begin this new thought. Um, But if you look at it, Paul keeps up with this sort of refrain of peace. If you look at the very end, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. And so what precedes that promise is how we get there. How how do we get the God of peace to be with us? How How can we know more intimately the God of peace? How can we experience more fully his presence with us? And his answer to that question is nothing extraordinary, right? He gives two commands. He says in verse 8, think about these things. And then verse 9, he says, practice these things. And let's take them one at a time. Uh, in verse 8, Paul gives a list of eight different virtues. 
Okay, and all of these virtues, um, this is one I want you to take away. All of these things are reflective of the character of God. They are reflective of the character of God. And Paul's point isn't to go through every single one, which we, we could do. Um, but what he's saying is that whatever reflects the goodness of God in this world, meditate on, set your mind on those things. Right? Think about those things. Now, what does it mean to think about these things? Okay, what, is that, uh, what does he mean by that? That word, think, it speaks of giving careful thought to something. Okay, it speaks of considering, it speaks of pondering, uh, it speaks of letting your mind dwell on something. Um, how many of you are animal science or agricultural science majors? I don't know why I asked that question. I know none of you are. Um, we live in California, not <laughs> Iowa. Um, but that's the thing. My younger brother, he actually used to be an animal science major. He went to Cal Poly Pomona. He wanted to be a vet, okay? Um, and he told me that one time for one of his classes, he actually had to stick his hand inside a cow's uh, other end. Yeah, seriously. Um, he didn't end up becoming a vet. He's, <laughs> he's a PT now. Anyways, if you are an animal science major, uh, you might know that cows, they take a long time to eat because they have many stomachs. Right? They have four stomachs. Um, and so when a cow chews its food, it actually is like burping some of its half-chewed food into its other stomach for more chewing and for like absorbing its nutrients and stuff. And there's a process, there's a name for this process, it's called rumination. And I think we get that because it actually means um, to like chew over or digest. And that's what Paul is telling us to do with everything that is good, everything that's excellent and praiseworthy. He says, chew on it over and over again. Like, run it back over and over again. Think upon it. You see, the world tells you that you get peace by, uh, by not thinking too hard, right? Like, just don't focus on this, don't focus on that, and you'll be at peace. But Scripture says that you get peace by thinking very hard, by thinking very hard, by learning, by grasping, by rejoicing in, by resting in all that is worthy, all that is excellent, one commentator, he puts it like this. He says, we are to meditate on, to prize as valuable, to be influenced by all that is true, all that merits serious thought and encourages serious mindedness, all that accords with justice and moral purity, all that is fragrant and lovely, all that brings with it a good word that speaks well, whatever has genuine worth of any sort and merits praise. It is the will of God that by giving attention to things of which he approves, that we should shape our minds to be like his. To those who do so, he pledges his guardian peace and his own presence as the God of peace. In other words, guys, we must think about our own thinking. Right? We must think about our own thinking. And scripture is clear that there is a huge significance to the role of thinking and to the role of the mind in the believer's life. You think of uh, Romans 12.2. Right? It says the believer's spiritual worship uh, is not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? As your mind is being renewed by the gift of, or by the, the word of God. So let me ask you, as you think about that, how's your intake, right? How's your intake? What are you taking in? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you thinking about? What are you talking about? Um, imagine you had like this filtering system, okay? Not only on your like web browser, but on your entire life. 
Okay, everything that you took in, and it automatically filtered through your TV, your computer, your cell phone, your Spotify playlist, your books, your video games, the places that you went, everything that you saw, everything that you heard, and it only allowed things that were consistent with what Paul says here in these verses. How much would be left for you to take in? Are you equipped with Scripture? The only way that we think rightly is through the renewal of our minds by Scripture. All right, so do you know Scripture? Like if a particular topic came up in your life, uh, would you know where in the Bible to go? Perhaps one of the reasons why we don't see evident spiritual change in our lives is, be- is because we spend too much time dwelling and meditating on and thinking about the wrong things and too little time on God's word and things that are worthy and excellent and good. Um, something that we say here uh, at the counseling ministry um, at Lighthouse is we tell our counselees that like, you shouldn't see this one hour a week as like this kind of magic hour. You shouldn't see your counseling sessions as this kind of magic hour. As if like showing up to counseling once a week uh, for an hour will fix everything in your life and will enact rapid spiritual change. Especially if the majority of your other time isn't spent thinking about God's word. The way that Pastor Kim puts it is, um, for example, if you're having trouble loving a, different, a difficult person in your life, like how can you expect to grow in loving them better if you're doing your devos in your bitterness? Right? If you're like spending your commutes just replaying in your mind all the ways that this person has wronged you and all the ways that like, they're undeserving of your love and, and your forgiveness. And so, what are you taking into your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? Is it scripture? Do you know what scripture says about itself? It says that it is, the word of God is a lamp to your feet. It directs you where to go. It is wisdom for the simple. It is understanding for the foolish. It is the solid rock that you build your house on. And when the storms and the winds come, it won't fall down if you're standing on the rock of God's word. And so, do you know it? Do you know it well? Do you know it well enough to inform the way that you think and the way that you live? And so what can you do? Give yourself um, to reading good Christian books. Right? Listen to worship music. Listen to sermon podcasts throughout your week as you're walking to class. Do things to fill yourself with the word of God. And what is the destination? Right? Notice there, Paul says, whatever is. Okay, whatever is. And he doesn't just say, like, Christian things only. Um, In fact, this list is similar to other lists of virtues in that day, and it's not distinctively Christian. What Paul is saying is that whatever is worthy of our thoughts in God's world, whatever is good, whatever is honorable, whatever is excellent in God's world, bring those things to mind and dwell on those things. And as as we think upon, as we approve what is true and excellent and praiseworthy, then we develop a taste for goodness. As we seek what is true, we confront what is false. As we pursue what is just, we confront that which is unjust. As we pursue what is lovely, we reject that which is unlovely. We begin to spot the difference between what is good and what is bad. Why? Because we are growing in our taste for goodness. And and when we grow in our taste for goodness, we're able to make wise decisions. Because we're growing in our taste for wisdom. We grow in discernment. Right? That's how we learn discernment. And as we grow in discernment, get this, we are growing in our ability to enjoy God's good gifts. Right? This is not restricting us. It is allowing us to enjoy God's gifts even better. There's a second command here in verse 9. 
He says, what do you have learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things. Okay, so as important as your mind and thinking is to your growth as a Christian, Paul does, uh, doesn't just leave it there, right? It, it's, it's good to think. It's, it's good to think about um, what you're dwelling on, but it's not all that there is. Otherwise, we risk becoming what Jamie Smith calls bobblehead Christians, people whose heads are big with knowledge but little concern to anything else, right? little concern for our affections and with our living. Instead, Paul moves from contemplation to action. Right? He moves from thinking about these virtues, and he talks about his own life as this like, example or embodiment of these virtues. And then he says, follow me and put these things into practice. Put these things into practice. And that word there is actually praxis, um, which is what our young adult group is named after. Putting these things into practice. Uh, it means to bring about or accomplish something through activity. Okay, so it's not just filling our minds with information, but it's allowing these things to form us and shape us. That all of this, the things that we think about, the people that we imitate, uh, the things that we practice, they all contribute to who we are becoming. Um, Jamie Smith, he, he's a philosopher, Christian philosopher, he describes it like this. He, he uses the illustration of learning the piano. Okay? He says, it is more like practicing scales on the piano than learning music theory. The goal is, in a sense, for your fingers to learn the scales so that they can then play them naturally, as it were. Learning here isn't just information acquisition. It's more like inscribing something into the very fiber of your being. CPG like that. <laughs> Let me put it like this. <laughs> learning to love God, learning to stand firm, to have hope in difficult circumstances, to know peace instead of anxiety, learning to do all of that, that's a skill. Okay, that is a skill. And to learn a skill, it takes practice. Right? And all of these things that you are taking in are serving to disciple you. They're serving to train you one way or another. Um, Smith continues, he says, discipleship, I like his definition. He says, discipleship is a way to curate your heart. It is to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. And so in light of that, what are you doing to curate your heart? Right, what are you doing to be intentional about what you love? How are you practicing so that you might grow in the skill of having joy and hope and peace in the midst of your circumstances? Like we said earlier, to know the peace of God comes about through very ordinary means. Right? Thinking about the right things, following the right examples, putting it all into practice. Let's bring this to a close. That was a lot, um, so let me summarize. Okay, As believers... We can know a supernatural and a surpassing peace from, uh, from God, one that radically transforms our relationships and our circumstances. The gospel compels us to pursue peace instead of conflict with one another, and it compels us to put the priority of the gospel over our own priorities and agendas. That's verses 2 and 3. We learn that we can know peace in our circumstances when we let joy and when we let prayer take the place of your anxiety. He says, uh, be gracious, be gentle towards others. Look away from yourselves and what you think you deserve and look to the needs of your brothers. And as far as your own needs, bring them to God. Bring them to God with thanksgiving. Finally, we can know peace as we think and as we practice the right things. As we contemplate those things in God's world, which are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, as we imitate those people who embody those same things in the examples of their lives. And here's the promise at the very end of all of that. The God of peace will be with you. 
The God of peace will be with you. If you notice, he changes that, right? He says, the peace of God will be with you. And now he says, the God of peace will be with you. The reason why we can know the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, is because the God of peace promises to be with us. You get that? God's presence brings his peace. So let me ask you, do you know what that's like? To know God's presence. In Psalm 73, 28, the psalmist, he says, The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. Do you know what it's like to have God with you? Do you know what it's like to feel him near you? Not just in this like omnipresent sense where God is everywhere, but in this personal way, a way that surpasses your understanding kind of way. Guys, it's impossible to control the details of our lives so that we never face difficult and broken relationships, so so that we never face uncertain and unfavorable circumstances. You know what scripture says? It says it's possible for us to know peace. And so go to him. Go to him. And and the God of peace promises that he will draw near to you. Go to him in prayer and he promises that he will send a garrison to guard your heart from anxiety. Go to him and know peace instead of anxiety. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, again for your promise that you do draw near to us, that you do defend um, our anxious hearts, Lord, that um, in the chaos, Lord, you, you promise us um, a stillness and uh, unshaken confidence, Lord, in your sovereignty and your goodness towards us. And so, Father, I pray that we would live as Um, people who are pursuing that peace in our lives, um, not just by uh, putting off the things that we do or or, or avoiding responsibility or running away from conflict or anything like that, but by pursuing you, by seeking you in prayer, by being gracious with others, by thinking upon the right things, um, even by moving towards others in conflict to, to show them the peace of the gospel. So God, take your word that was preached tonight, apply it to our hearts, help us to know you, the God of peace, even better. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this all in Christ's name. Amen.